Well, again, good morning. As I said at the start of this service, we are in a brand new series, a series that we are calling Mirror, Mirror, in which we are going to be learning what does it mean to see ourselves and to look at our lives through the eyes of God. And so as we prepare to dive into this series, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that we can come into this place to meet with you and that we can learn from your word how you see us, that as we gaze into the mirror of scripture, we may be uh, confronted by its truth, but also by its goodness and grace and mercy. And so Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to see, to see clearly, that we would have open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to start by asking a question. How many of you can remember the very first movie that you saw in a movie theater? How many of you can remember? Do you remember what the movie was? Mary Poppins. I remember the very first movie that I saw in a movie theater. The very first movie that I saw was actually Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. You see, it was a matinee presentation, and so they were like replaying Disney movies for kids, and my parents took me to the theater. This is the first theater experience that I can remember, and I remember a lot about this movie. It, it kind of stuck out in my head, because first of all, that was the biggest screen I'd ever seen in my entire life. And to see this huge cartoon being portrayed, I mean, that leaves an impression on a kid. And there was a lot about the movie that I remember. I remember the seven dwarves and their music and their songs. I remember that scene when they first meet Snow White and how silly and goofy it was. I remember the wicked stepmother and her terrifying disguise as the old woman and, and the horror as she extended that poisoned apple to Snow White to, to eat. And I remember her magic mirror, the mirror that she looked into in order to learn the truth. But one of the things that I realized recently is that I've actually remembered something about this movie wrong all these years. That there's something that I remember with crystal clarity, which actually didn't happen in the film. You guys know what it is? I'll give you a hint. What was the wicked stepmother's famous line when she stands before her mirror? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the first? Are you sure? See, now you're, now you're wondering. I want to I replay this scene for just a moment, and let's see what she actually says in front of the mirror. So let's go ahead and watch this.
no white. <laughs> but did you catch the line? It's, it's not mirror, mirror on the wall. It's magic mirror on the wall. Now, in fairness, in fairness, in the Grimm's Brothers fairy tales, that is the line, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is fairest of them all? But for, for the animated version, it's magic mirror on the wall. But regardless of whether you're thinking of the fairy tale or you're thinking of the movie, the one thing that's important to remember in both is that the magic mirror always tells the truth. The magic mirror always tells the truth. That when she comes before the mirror to ask her question, magic mirror on the wall, who is fairest of them all, it always tells her the truth. And for most of her life, the answer is, is quite clear. You are, O oh queen. You are the fairest of them all. Until the day when the truth upsets her. When she learns that she's no longer the fairest one in the land. Now it's still the truth. It's not the mirror's fault. It's sim he's simply saying what is actually true. But her reaction suddenly changes to the mirror's message. And the reason why uh, I wanted us to, to look at that and to remember that little detail from this fairy tale is because that is really what we are going to be doing over the next four weeks, is we are going to be looking into the mirror of Scripture. We are going to be looking into the mirror of God's Word because in God's Word, we encounter the truth. It always speaks the truth to us. It will not lie. It will not deceive but our reactions to it are what we really need to attend to. And what we're going to be seeing specifically is that when we look into the mirror of Scripture, when we come before that mirror by ourselves, we see a couple of very, very hard truths. In week one, we're going to see our sins. In week two, we're going to see our past. In week three, we're going to see our mess. And in week four, we are going to see that we are weak. That when we look into the mirror of scripture, there are some truths there that are going to be spoken, which will be hard to stomach. But here's the other thing to keep in mind. These aren't the only truths that will be found there as well. That while we may come before the mirror alone and see very, very hard truths, what we'll see is that when we come before the mirror in God and in Christ, those truths can actually be quite liberating and truly set us free. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to dive into Scripture a little bit. And we're going to be talking specifically in this first week about what we see when we come before the mirror of God's uh, word alone. Then, and what we see is that when we come before the mirror of God's word alone, what we end up seeing reflected in that mirror is our sin. That's what we end up seeing when we stare into it. Now, sin is, is a difficult word in our culture today because it often raises a lot of emotional reactions. People have strong reactions to this word sin because of the fact that oftentimes what we associate with it is like that preacher on the street corner who's waving signs and yelling through a megaphone about how God hates you and how he hates your sins and that you should repent. But furthermore, I would argue that even if you take sin out of that kind of very emotional context, our culture doesn't really understand this term. And here's, and here's why I say that. If you type the word sin into your Google search bar, you want to get a definition for sin, this is the definition that pops up. It says, sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. Sin is, a moral, and is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. 
Likewise, if you type in the word sinner, this is what comes up. A sinner is a person who transgresses against divine law by committing an immoral act or acts. Now, here's why I would say that that's a problem. It's because both of these definitions equate sin with behaviors. That when we think of sin in our culture, what we tend to think of is that there's some sort of divine set of rules, and that sins are all the ways in which we break those rules. That that's really what sin is all about. It simply is about our behaviors. But the problem with that is that that's not actually what Scripture tells us sin is at its core. And to help tease this out a little bit, I want to ask a question. Am I a sinner because I sin, or do I sin because I'm a sinner? Am I a sinner because I sin, or do I sin because I'm a sinner? You see, this is a, this is a slight nuance, but one that we have to wrestle with. Am I a sinner because I've broken some rules? And is it simply then a matter of me adjusting and changing my behavior? Is that really the problem? Because if that's the problem, what's required is, a, is one particular kind of solution, namely behavior modification. I just have to work harder at it. I have to put these things into practice. But if, it's, if the answer is that I sin because I'm a sinner, then what that says is that I have a fundamental core identity out of which I do all of these immoral things. That there's something deep down wrong within my heart and within my soul, and that requires a much more drastic solution. So what does God's word say? Am I a sinner because I sin, or do I sin because I'm a sinner? Well, let's take a look for a moment. Let's take a look into the mirror of Scripture and actually see what it says. First, I want to revisit something that we actually, it was a passage that we actually had to go over fairly quickly in our last series in the book of Romans. But here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. He says, For we have already charged that all Uh, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No no one does good, not even one. And if you were to go on in chapter 3, he continues this list, going over and over and over again the fact that every single person is a sinner at their core. Likewise, if you were to go back to the Old Testament as well, and you were to look at the Psalms, this is what the psalmist writes. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. These are just two places in Scripture of many in which God's word, the mirror of God's word, tells us that at our core we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That there's something fundamentally wrong with the human heart, with the human soul, with the human mind, with the human being, so that from the moment we are born, we are sinners. This is our identity. It's who we are. And this is something that I think a lot of modern people wrestle with. We have a hard time with this. We say, you know, that, that just seems wrong. I, I mean, I'm a fairly good person. I do things right. You know, I've kind of got my life together, correct? But I think the truth is, is if we are willing to actually look into the mirror for just a moment, we begin to see how true it actually is. That if we have the courage to be honest with ourselves, what we find is that we all know deep down that there's something wrong. Now we try to cover it up. We put on masks 
to try and numb ourselves to the reality that we don't want to see. We numb ourselves to things like success and power and wealth and relationships. We try to put on a good face to the world so that hopefully not only will we convince the people around us that we're actually really good people who have our lives together, but we also try to convince ourselves. We carefully curate our social media pages so that only the best gets out there. We we love when we meet with people at parties and they ask us how we're doing to put on a great face. Yeah, I'm doing good. Things are going well. I just got this promotion. I'm about to get a promotion. This is my wife. These are my kids. Look how well adjusted they are at this one perfect photo that we just took in this photographer's studio. Like, I mean, it's just like, I mean, this is what we do. We love to put on these, these masks in order to blind ourselves and others to the fact that deep down, deep inside, we know something's wrong. And we know something's wrong, specifically in those moments and those seasons of life when our masks start to crack. When suddenly we lose that job, we don't get that promotion, our marriage fails, our kids act up, the people that we thought were our friends turn their backs on us, and we we suddenly find that our bank accounts are dry, and we have nothing uh, nothing to lean back on, nothing to turn back on, and, and suddenly we find that there are now cracks in our masks, many of them of our own making. Many of them of our own doing. And in those moments when our masks begin to crack, well, then we default to denial, excuses, and blame. Say, no, 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 it's not really that big of a deal. It's not, it's not really a big problem. Okay? It's not really that big of an issue. Or, or we start to make excuses. Well, yeah, but, you know, this is just the way I am. I mean, that's actually one of my favorite excuses these days. It's just like, hey, I'm just being honest. Have you guys heard that phrase? Yeah, I'm just being honest. Just being honest. No, you're not just being honest. You're being a bully. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm just being honest. And we use that as an excuse to tear down people around us. We use it as an excuse to justify our own bad behavior. I'm just being honest. Or we blame. We say, well, it's not really my fault if my parents just raised me better. Or if my boss really understood how much time I put into this work. Or if she just appreciated me more. Or if the kids just respected the fact that I've put a roof over their heads and food on their plates. Denial, excuses, and blame. Why do we do this to deflect from the reality of having to look through the crack and see ourselves in the mirror and to recognize in that moment, if I'm truly honest, most of these problems that I deal with in my life are of my own design. And when we go before the magic mirror and we say, mirror, mirror on the wall, what do we see but that we are just a sinner? We come face to face with our brokenness. And it terrifies us. But keep this in mind. The mirror of God's word does not lie. It tells the truth. And when it says that surely we are sinful, even from the moment of our birth, it's putting its finger on the real problem in every single one of our lives. A problem that we would rather not see, a problem we would prefer to hide from, but a problem that is just as real, just as true, just as damaging as anything else in life. Something that we have to deal with, something we have to wrestle with. When we come before the mirror of God and before the mirror of his word, when we come before that mirror alone, it tells us the hard truth that we are sinners. And that we sin because we're sinners. 
But as I said, there's also good news that the mirror has to deliver as well. Because this isn't the only message that the mirror of God's word speaks into our lives. And to help us see this, I want to invite you to turn with me to the passage that was read a little bit earlier on in our service. We are looking at Hebrews chapter 10. Looking at Hebrews chapter 10, you can actually find the page reference in your bulletin for this morning if you're using the Pew Bible. But we're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Because what Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 14, tells us is that when we come before the mirror of God's word alone, we see our sin. But when we come before the mirror of God's word in Christ, in God, we see something very, very different. We see ourselves through the eyes of God, and this is what it says, beginning in verse 14. It says, For by one sacrifice Jesus Christ has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now I want to pause right here and I want to unpack those verses for just a moment. Do you hear what he's saying? What the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying that when you come before the mirror of God's word in Christ, what it tells you is first and foremost that you have been made perfect forever. That while we go before the mirror of God's word alone and see a sinner, he says that when you are in Christ through Jesus, you have actually been made perfect for all time. You've been made perfect for all time. He says, for by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And he says, now this is a process. This is a process in our lives of being made holy. This is a process that we experience as ongoing. But what he says is, he says, but from God's perspective, that process is done. In fact, in the book of Philippians, at one point, Paul actually says, May he who began this good work in you bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says it's a process that we experience, but the reality is, is in God's eyes, it's a done deal. That when he looks at us, rather than seeing our sin, because you are in Jesus Christ, what God sees when you come before his mirror in Jesus Christ is he sees you as a saint. That you've been washed, you've been made clean, you've been made perfect. And he says, and furthermore, I'm going to write my word on your hearts. I will put my laws on their hearts, I will write them on their minds. But then listen to what he says in verse 17. This is even more astounding. He says, then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. God actually says that because of Jesus and what he's done for you, I've forgotten your sins. Now we take a step back and we say, how is that even possible? I remember my sins all the time. Other people seem to remember my sins. But what God's word says, it says, God says, I don't. That when I look at you, they're forgotten. That if anybody were to stand before my throne and point a finger at you and say, how could you possibly forgive this person after all they have done? God says, what are you talking about? Well, this and this and this and this and this. Sorry, I don't recall. 
That's actually God's response. I will remember your sins and your lawless acts no more. They are done with. They are gone. I actually love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He actually says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You see, when we come before the mirror of God's word alone, we see our sin. But when we come before the mirror of God's word in Jesus, we realize that God sees us as saints, sees us as holy, sees us through the eyes of his son, dearly beloved and holy and completely forgiven. You may say, well, how, how, how is that possible? How does God do that? Well, the answer is, is he does that on the cross. What I love is is on that moment when Jesus goes to the cross, he's going there because we are sinners. He's taking the place of a sinner because a sinner in the presence of God alone deserves one thing, and that is judgment and punishment. But what Jesus says is he says, I take that punishment on my own shoulders. He goes to the cross. He dies the death that we should have died so that we might receive his perfection, his righteousness, and his final words from that cross before he yields up his spirit is he says, it is finished. Your sins are counted against you no more. They've been paid for. They've been dealt with. They've been judged. And you are now washed and cleaned in the sight of God. Another passage. It's a favorite of mine. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. He's saying that when you've been crucified with Christ, you have a new identity. And that is, is a dearly beloved child of God. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is, there's a reason this is actually my son's baptism verse. Is because I want him to know that his entire life, that he has a new identity in Jesus. But that's something that I want for every single one of you. That you would know that in Jesus, it's been paid for, it's done, and the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and who gave himself up for you. That's the free gift that God gives us. But that gift is an amazing gift because it brings with it some incredible implications. And briefly, I just want to apply this to our lives for a moment. When you realize that in Christ you are holy and completely forgiven, what that then means is that you are able to stand in the presence of God and have peace. You can stand in the presence of God and have peace. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. I love these verses starting in 19 and following. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. He's saying you never have to be afraid of God again. 
You never have to wonder, what does God think of me? Will he reject me on that day when we meet each other face to face? When I finally come to my end and I pass from this world, what greeting will I receive in the throne room? The answer from the writer of Hebrews is you will receive a hearty welcome. That you can approach the throne of God with confidence because you have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. You have been washed and made clean. And God says, you can have peace in my presence. For you are my child. Welcome home. But the second gift that comes with this amazing forgiveness is this. I am actually able to now look in the mirror without fear. I mean, listen, as he goes on, he says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see, when I know that I am a forgiven child of God, it allows me to look in the mirror and not be afraid of what I see. It allows me to look in the mirror and honestly deal with my sins and not have to feel like I have to manage them or cover them up or make excuses because I know that, yes, while I still struggle with sin, I am no longer a sinner. That while I still struggle with sin, my sins don't define me, nor will they overwhelm me. And it allows me to be honest when I've wronged people. That when people come to me and say, hey, when you did that thing and it hurt me, I no longer have to fear or make excuses. I can honestly say, I'm sorry. You're right. I did do that. And how can I make amends? That I can deal with my sin honestly because I know it doesn't define me. That it won't overwhelm me. That because I'm forgiven in God's sight, I can actually go about my life realizing that it's okay to not be okay. That it's okay to struggle. To be honest with people and say, yeah, there's stuff going on in my life that's really messed up, but I know that God's grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness, and I can deal with it. Not on my own strength, not by my own power, but because he has washed me. He has cleansed me from a guilty conscience. And third and finally, just love this. It says that we can actually be a source of encouragement to others. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, because I know that I am forgiven. And because I know the love and the grace of God, my desire is that you too would know that story that you too would know that God loves you, that he died for you, to forgive you and to give you new life. And furthermore, when, when we see a neighbor or a friend or a fellow Christian struggling in sin, rather than casting down judgment on them, rather than condemning them, we can say, you know, I know you're struggling with that, but God desires more for your life. He has a plan and a purpose for you, and I want to come alongside you to walk with you to help you live out that plan and purpose. We don't come with judgment. We come with encouragement, words of grace to one another. And in fact, some of my favorite stories, some of the best examples that I've seen of Christians in my life are Christians who are well aware of their shortcomings and who out of their own brokenness give the love and grace of God to other people who are in the exact same spot. Say, I know what it's like to have a marriage fall apart. I know what it's like to lose a child. 
I know what it's like to fail and to lose a job. I know what it's like to be condemned and stabbed in the back. I know what it's like to make a mistake and feel like that mistake now defines the rest of your life. But I have good news for you. That's not the last word. God's mercy and God's grace is his final word to you. And we become a source of encouragement in the lives of the people around us. When we come before the mirror of God's word alone, we see our sin. But we, we come before the mirror of God's word in Jesus Christ, what we begin to see is we see ourselves through the eyes of God, the one who calls us beloved and forgiven children. So what do you see when you look in the mirror? Can you say with the hymn writer, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Can you say that? My prayer for you this morning is that if you walked in here being burdened by what you've done, by what you've failed to do, by what others have said, by the brokenness within your life, is that you would walk out of this place able to say, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That you would know that while your sin would tell you that's who you are, that in Christ Jesus you can know that you are forgiven. My prayer this morning is that if you've come in here, burdened down by your masks, that this would be the place where you can take them off. That you can lay them at the feet of the God who loves you. And hear him say, welcome home. For it is finished. In Christ, we have been cleansed of a guilty conscience. We've been washed and made pure in his sight. And we are no longer sinners. But we are saints saved by the grace of God. It's in the name of Jesus, who is indeed our great high priest, that we say, praise be to God. Amen.